Again, good morning. And this morning, I'll continue with uh, reflections that I started uh, last week. And the theme that I uh, started last week is on Dharma in the Holy Land. I, as many of you know, I returned a little over 10 days ago from about five weeks in Israel and sometime in the Palestinian territories. And last time I gave a more personal account of some of my experiences grouped under a few different Dharma themes, tried to connect it with our everyday practice, uh, and showed a number of uh, images, that, uh, mostly photographs that I took, uh, that uh, are now, if you want to uh, see them, they're on Dharma Seed, along with the recording of the talk. So if you want to go back and hear that and see about 60 images that I took, uh, um, most, most of them my own photographs uh, from different situations, including, including uh, photographs from the um, occupied territories in, in mostly um, near Jerusalem. <laughs> And so those images are all, are all there. So today, I think I'm partly just almost um, energized and a little bit driven to make some sense of the situation and connect it with our, our sense of practice. And so today I want to have more of a talk that uh, explores really how we bring a sense of practice in general to a difficult situation and in particular to this quite difficult uh, underlying conflict. And I mentioned last week how when I was there, almost immediately, I was there five weeks, I was invited there to teach. I taught three retreats, gave, I think, uh, uh, three talks, taught a few evenings, uh, and uh, two of the retreats were weekends. One was about a six-day retreat, and was given an apartment in uh, Tel Aviv, which was part of a center, part of a Dharma center. And how many of you have been to Israel? So quite a number, yeah. So, so some of this will be, will be familiar reference points. So, but I wanted to explore today more of this question of how we bring practice to difficult situations. And I want to, again, I want to focus on the particular situation there, but really make connections with how we practice with difficult situations ourselves, whether they are individual, whether we're going through a difficult time individually, uh, particularly places which seem stuck to us. You know, could we can have a certain stuckness individually, maybe there's some, uh, could be depression or some really, some really difficult, um, mind state, emotional state, that just seems resistant to our having it change or move. That happens at times for us. Or it could be a difficult interpersonal situation that seems stuck, you know, maybe within a family or a close relationship or at work. And how do we, how do we understand these situations? And then thirdly, there could be uh, social situations. There could be, and there are, social situations which seem stuck, whether it's a particular social conflict, such as that which you find uh, 
connected with the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians, or it could be climate issues, or it could be political situation in any particular country, perhaps our own, <laughs> you know, where there, where there are very challenging situations and it's, it's hard to know what to do. So I'm going to focus on that uh, more generally and really ask questions like, how do we bring our practice to that? Because for many of us, the meditation practice can seem very valuable and can seem very clearly beneficial for helping me to have more calm, more peace, more insight, more ability to work with difficult states. And yet, we, we, when we come to really challenging situations, we may wonder if the practice and our perspective and what we sometimes call the Dharma, the teachings, we may wonder whether does this really apply to the difficult situations, you know? Uh, you know, I find it useful for insight, for calm, but does it really make sense? We may have, in a way, what we could call a certain uh, crisis of faith, or just a question of whether whether it's applicable, right? And I, w I was thinking that that's been the case in many situations. We can see that, um, for, for example, I remember reading uh, from Dr. King, you know, originally, uh, Martin Luther King thought that the Christian teaching of love was only really applicable to personal relationships and to um, one's own personal behavior. He said he didn't really think that it made any sense. There were limits to the notion of love. It didn't make sense for social situations. That was his original understanding. He said then he read Gandhi. You know, of course, Gandhi was not a Christian per se, but he, he read Gandhi and he basically could see the ways that we might say spirituality could be brought to these larger situations. So I thought I'd, I'd read this. It's a very, uh, for me, a very moving passage. He said, prior to reading Gandhi, I had concluded that the ethics of Jesus were only effective in individual relationships. Interesting, right? limitation. So this, te this grand teaching of love, which at other times King says this is about love is the teaching about the ultimate nature of reality, right? And then he's saying, okay, this teaching about the ultimate nature of reality, well, it only goes for this part of reality. <laughs> right? That's interesting, right? Um, and so he said that the turn the other cheek philosophy and the love your enemies philosophy were only valid, I felt, when individuals were in conflict with other individuals, when racial groups and nations were in conflict, a more realistic approach seemed necessary. That's what his thinking was earlier. But after reading Gandhi, I saw how utterly mistaken I was. That was his conclusion. And of course, the you know coming to that conclusion changes history. Uh, how utterly mistaken I was. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. That's really a question we may have. You know, is this teaching, is the teaching of love, or is the teaching of kindness, or is the teaching of compassion, of empathy, of uh, wisdom, does this really just hold in my own individual being with myself, or does this, is this really a guide for the, for the hard places, the places where I feel stuck individually, 
in my relationships, the conflicts, things at work, does it really apply? And I think that's, um, of course, my suggestion is that yes, it does apply, but I think that it's actually hard for us in many ways because in many ways, the teachings that we have here were primarily developed in uh, monastic communities, which were, there was a communal dimension, there was a way that this was developed in community, but I think the focus was especially on how do we make this work in terms of individual practice in the communal setting. And so we don't necessarily have the well-developed practices for translating these beautiful teachings into maybe even into psychological issues. How do you bring these into difficult psychological conditions, depression, or some way that we have uh, a lot of grief or sadness about something, or how do we bring it into interpersonal conflicts, or how do we bring it into social situation? Um, but, and so I think there's a need, and this has been a theme that I've offered a lot, and it's really the theme of the book, there's a need to uh, see the ways that these core principles of empathy, compassion, wisdom, understanding the nature of suffering can be brought into really all the parts of our lives. And I think that's sort of a, a collective project for all of us to do. How do we, how do we together collaborate to have these beautiful practices work in all the parts of our lives as contemporary people living in the West, trying to bring this into work, family, relationships, our minds, you know, and so forth. And I think that's uh, a project. And part of the reason that we might have doubts is that that project is young. We're still very much developing the resources. Um, one of the models that I found helpful, and that was really the guide for, for the book that I didn't love the teaching, is to see that there we could think of there being these three parts of our lives. There's the part, there's my own individual experience. These are interrelated. There's my relational experience. And there's my experience as a member of the social collective, right? As a citizen, you might say. And um, these are kind of interpenetrating, you know, but for, for ease, we can talk about these three areas. And what I found, for example, is that the core principles really make sense in all the different areas. But we don't have well-developed understandings or practices in the relational and the collective sphere. And that's really, I think, partly what we're called to develop. So an example, and I think this is a, a teaching that I want to show how it makes sense in all three areas. So because um, what I found was that the core principles make sense in all the areas, but they're just not so well developed or articulated. So one example where I think we can see this actually maybe more easily than others is this fundamental teaching that we have in Buddhist tradition called the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Some of you know it's the teaching that there is dukkha, usually translated as suffering. There's a cause, there's the possibility of freedom from suffering and that there is a practical way to, to do that. And the teaching which I like, which I often give here, which is for me the clearest, a very clear way to articulate this teaching is to call the teaching of the two arrows. And so um, this is again one of my favorite teachings and, and I have to be in the right mood and 
energy to, to give this. Let me center myself. And <laughs> Ready? Okay. So here, here's the teaching, okay? And the teaching is uh, one day the, the Buddha was talking to a bunch of practitioners and he said, everyone at times experiences unpleasant experiences. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And they said, basically, duh, you tell us. <laughs> and so he answers his own question, which is very common in, in if you read the, the text. And he said, here is the way it is. He didn't use the language, but more or less was saying that. Um, we all, at times, have unpleasant experiences. Agreed? Okay. And uh, they can be of different natures. Sometimes we have obviously have unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant experiences in the body. We get ill, we're injured at times. Um, you know, we, uh, all of us, if we're lucky, we get older, the body gets weaker at times, frailer, you know, eventually and so forth. And there's also the, the fact, uh, the reality of dying and death. You know, at times there are unpleasant experiences. Um, we can also have unpleasant emotional experiences. We know this very well. We have difficulty, anger, irritation. Um, we get sad. We have um, despair at times. We have difficult emotional experiences in relations with others and our own experience and so forth. Everyone has those. No, no difference. Uh, no difference if you're the Buddha. The Buddha, uh, I don't know about difficult emotional experiences, but but um, he had difficult physical experiences, particularly later in life. He, later in his life, he had headaches. You know, he had a bad back. You know, sometimes he, he's, you know, he, he would tell one of his uh, colleagues, you know, you know, you know, my back's killing me. Can you give the talk this morning? And, okay. So, so that was that was true for the Buddha. You know, being a fully enlightened being, you know, didn't mean that he didn't have backaches. So. <laughs> And then uh, we can also have difficult uh, experiences in terms of being treated unfairly or unjustly, maybe you know, in a work situation and interpersonally, socially, we may be, you know, you know, we have conditioning as members of groups. If we're a member of a group that, you know, you know if we're a woman, have a non-conforming sexual orientation, member of uh, a group, an ethnic group that's generally not treated well, we get treated unfairly, right? And that can be part of our experience. And that's, that, uh, the Buddha said, is there for everyone at times, right? No difference, right? So where is the difference? He said that if you are a non-practitioner, you are sometimes shot, he said, by an arrow. He called this the first arrow. The first arrow is the arrow of having unpleasant experiences of these different kinds. At times we are shot by the first arrow. He said that what a non-practitioner tends to do because of the presence of the first arrow is to shoot a second arrow at oneself or at another as if that would help. So what does that, what does that mean? It means if we have difficult physical experiences, we may uh, actually tense in the body around that as if that would help. And again, 
uh, one of the first areas in medicine where mindfulness was applied was in the area of chronic pain, where many people with chronic pain are basically tensing around the pain. And some of the doctors say that as much as 80% of the actual pain is not the original situation, but the reaction. And so you see if that's true, it's not true with all types of chronic pain, but with some it is, that if you could actually teach people to be mindful and not have that reaction, you could get rid of as much as 80% of the pain. Pretty amazing, right? That's possible. And of course, we see that very clearly with emotions. I have a, a 10 second difficult interaction with someone at work, and I blame and judge that person for the next three months. Has anyone ever experienced anything even a little bit like this? <laughs> okay, right. That's called shooting the second arrow. The tensing is called shooting the second arrow, right? And so we can start to see how that's a very basic principle. We can see how it makes sense in terms of individual experience. Can you also see how it makes sense in terms of relational experience? You have difficult emotions, or maybe you're treated unfairly, you react. And then, of course, in social situations, uh, one group maybe receives pain, and they react and try to actually they give back the pain to the other side. A lot of conflicts are people shooting the second arrow at each other. We have received pain, we blame you, we try to cause you pain. You know, in the worst of situations, it's violence meeting violence, right? And the teaching is basically saying that one can learn not to shoot the second arrow. You can do that individually, you can do that relationally, you can do that socially, and that will be actually the basis for even pointing to this very difficult conflict in the Middle East, that the teaching is really saying it is possible to respond to pain without recycling the pain. Not easy, right? Not easy. But that's the core principle. So can you start to see how the same principle makes sense individually, relationally and collectively. I find that example very, very good for that. And of course, we don't know, you know, individually in meditation, we have some very good guidance on how to not shoot the second arrow. You know, first of all, we can be mindful of the tendencies to shoot the second arrow. You can watch your mind. Notice when you are, you can notice when you're reacting physically. You can be mindful. You can just say, ah, oh, I have a you know unpleasant sensation. Can I just relax around it? Can I learn to do that? Can I relax around it? In addition to doing what's what's a you know a caring response, taking care of myself. But can I, if it's there and I can't do anything about it, can I relax around it? Can I not sort of blame myself or someone other for doing that? We can notice that interpersonally. You know, uh, maybe I'll go back individually. We can be mindful, we can relax, we can tell ourselves, uh, you know, can I just be with it? it? We can say around ourselves, it's impermanent, it's not going to last forever. And can I do that? Maybe I can also develop compassion for my situation. This is hard. Let me just, you know, let me just give myself some compassion for this hard situation. We can do the same thing with emotional difficulties. We can actually be present with it. We can notice the tendency 
to blame or judge. And we can work with that you know, in all sorts of ways. And we can do that in many, many, many ways. And we can notice the tendency to, when I have a difficult emotional experience, maybe in a personal situation, I can notice the tendency to judge the other, judge myself, blame, you know, have nasty words, etc. And we can learn in our practice how to not shoot the second arrow in terms of blaming or judging. We can develop skillful responses by studying skillful speech practice. I can learn empathy for the other. I can be not so self-centered when I have pain. That's a tendency, right? The teaching would be that when I have pain, I have a strong tendency to just make it all about me and forget about the other. So in a conflict, I'll lose empathy for the other. So we have all these ways that we can practice. I can develop compassion. I can develop empathy for the other. I can have skillful speech. I can understand the conflict. I can try to take the perspective of both parties and so forth. If I'm just going in a conditioned way, I don't do that, right? I shoot the second arrow and I'm in the loops, the cycles of reactivity. Because shooting the second arrow is basically being reactive, not conscious, not being mindful. Do you have a question of clarification? Yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, in the news about... Oh, and the sanctions. Um, I'm not going to get into the specific example. You could, you could ask that. What is skillful action? And what is, uh, what is shooting the second arrow? Because this is not, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get into the complexity of that situation. I actually, I'd have to know more. But, for example, we can think interpersonally. If someone maybe does something that's unskillful, maybe someone speaks to me in a very negative way, um, I can shoot the second arrow towards that person, but it may be part of being skillful to say, uh, that was, I don't think that was appropriate, right? Uh, please don't do that. And if you, you know, you could even say, if you do that again, I, I may say, I don't want to continue speaking, right? So you could take a strong action, but it comes out of a non-reactive place. So it's, pretend, it's possible to, you know, so this is where our practice is not about being pushovers, nicey-nice. We can actually have, it's hard, it's, it's easier just to react, right? Okay, took care of that, right? But we, the idea is that we can, from a non-reactive place, still be responsive, say no, set boundaries, saying that's not okay, and take, take actions, right? Not easy, but, but this is all pointing to that possibility, right? Okay? So you get the idea. You get the idea of this, of this teaching and the need to have, uh, you know, there we start to see how we have a, a core teaching that makes sense individually, relationally, and collectively. You can see that. And we can also see how if we're going to be acting collectively, a lot of the individual training becomes very important, right? If we want to act collectively in some difficult conflict, to be, have the ability to be mindful of my own tendencies to react, and therefore to have empathy towards other people who are reacting, to have compassion for the situation, to be able to learn how to uh, have skillful speech, all of this would be crucial if I'm trying to intervene in a larger way. So you start to see this is, 
you know, one thing I've been very interested in, what does a curriculum or a training program look like for people who are wanting to connect the individual work with either, you know, your community, your relationships, or being with the larger world? You can start to see what the, the curriculum looks like, you know? Could be, could define a whole undergraduate and graduate curriculum. You know, we didn't get a lot of it at the universities or the colleges we went to. Maybe some of us got some of it, but I didn't get much of that, right? I, you know, maybe in 50 years it'll be there, right? It's a, it's a vision, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's the pointer, you know? And the, the fact is that the Buddhist teaching has essentially been really about, uh, primarily about individual liberation. Sometimes for the sake of others, but you know, uh, there, there's a passage I like to read from Gary Snyder, where, where he says, "Historic." This is from 1964. The poet Gary Snyder. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors. And he goes on to say that uh, institutional Buddhism has sometimes been ready to accept or ignore the inequalities of a society. And he says that sometimes the, um, you know, the net effect is primarily to have wonderful systems by which a few dedicated people find liberation or others find some help. And he says, let us bring it into the larger, larger world. And, and so um, that's what I really want to point to and point to some of the ways we can do that. And this, again, was kind of an inner need to do that with the situation in uh, Israel and Palestine from having been there. But I want to, again, try to continually make that a reference point for looking at other difficulties. So I want to talk more and kind of talk about that specific conflict. And the perspective that I have is that that we need to have all of the dimensions of our practice brought into these other realms, relational and collective. And that um, one of the other core principles is that we need, in, when we go to something really difficult, individual, relational, or collective, it really helps if we've developed capacities in less difficult circumstances. So a core principle is that we need to train in relatively safe situations where we, where we develop mindfulness, we develop compassion, we develop empathy, we develop all these capacities and if we develop those a lot, then we can, this is the ideal training, and then we bring them into difficulties, right? Of course, in a lot of situations, the difficulty comes right away and you don't have time for training, so you kind of have to deal with it, right? So, but ideally, we can really train ourselves in and develop these capacities where it's easier. And for many of us, that's an option. We have actually good training situations and maybe Maybe we're not so much engaged in difficulties, but we can learn the principles and have them internalized by developing them where it's easier. It's a really, it's a training, every, any kind of training works like that. You develop the capacities where it's easier, then you bring it into the harder situation. So I'm gonna to try to bring it into a harder situation, okay? So, um, so the basic framework that I have which has been influenced by a number of different people, is that in the Middle East you have basically 
a situation, kind of a tragic situation, of two sides that have some rightness on their side. You know, there's an essay, I brought in this clipping of the, uh, the, uh, the Israeli newspaper after the um, Warriors won the NBA championships. It was, this is, anyone wants to come and look at this, anyone interested in the Warriors, this is, this is, this shows in the Israeli newspapers, Stephen Curry smoking his cigar. So anyway, I'll have this up there later. I, I was gonna show this to you. But anyway, uh, I've been influenced a lot. Uh, there, there's a writer named Amos Oz, who's a major novelist, and he wrote a very beautiful book called How to Cure a Fanatic, which has a, a very nice short chapter called Between Right and Right, which talks about the situation. And this, this is really, for me, this is a, a framework of compassion and empathy, which is a very good starting point for looking at any conflict. Can you look at it with some compassion and empathy for the two sides? Not easy, because what happens, especially if I'm on one side, right? If I have pain, there's a very strong tendency to be reactive, and that means often blaming the other side, right? Whether it's, again, interpersonal situation or social situation. And moving into self-righteousness, I'm the victim, I'm good, the other side's bad, they're to blame. And we find that obviously in the Middle East, right? Both sides are fairly polarized around a narrative in which they're right, the other side is wrong, we're good, we're the victim, they're to blame, right? And in some ways it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite simple in some ways. In other ways, it's very complex. This is, this is, from, um, this is from Amos Oz, and this is a passage I found helpful. One of the things which makes this particular conflict hard is the fact that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is essentially a conflict between two victims. Two victims of the same oppressor, Europe, which colonized the Arab world, exploited it, humiliated it, trampled upon its culture, controlled it, and used it as an imperialistic playground is the same Europe which discriminated against the Jews, persecuted them, harassed them, and finally massacred them in unprecedented crime of genocide. Now you would have thought that two victims would immediately develop between themselves a sense of solidarity, but in real life some of the worst conflicts are precisely between the conflicts between two victims of the same oppressor. Yeah, and this is precisely the case, not just between Israeli and Palestinian, but between Jew and Arab. Each looks at the other and sees in the other the image of their past oppressors. And so forth. So I'll, I'll come back to that theme, because essentially it gives a framework of compassion and empathy. And some of the people who, I've, who have really been most influential for me see the situation as a situation of conflict between two traumatized people. Two people who have massive trauma in their experience. And again, I want to make the connections because between sometimes we have trauma in our own background. We have places where we're really stuck, right? It can be not necessarily trauma as, you know, having some massive negative event happen, but we can have trauma because my parents divorced when I was five years old. For a young child, that can be traumatic. And there can be a way that we get, we get stuck, you know? 
essentially the, the people that I've trained with in terms of trauma see trauma as the dysregulation of the nervous system. See a way that we get uh, a way that we get stuck. And maybe I'll maybe I'll say a little bit about that because um, it's a way that we get stuck and we have certain external events have happened and we get into a place where the pain has not been resolved. And so again, this is applicable probably for all of us. All of us have to some extent unresolved pain from the past. Anyone not? <laughs> I see no hands being, being raised. Yeah. So, we, so, so in a way, it may not be trauma, but what I found also in looking at trauma and being involved in trainings, that there's kind of a continuum. And so probably what I'm saying is true for any pain from the past. It's particularly where the pain is more intense. You know, and again, we can have trauma. A child can fall off a bicycle at age three and have trauma and never want to get on a bicycle again. We can have trauma from that divorce at age five. We can have trauma from, I don't know, moving and leaving a very close community and being being uh, with people we don't know at a young age. We can have trauma from the events, from the uh, major social events of the past. A lot of people say that we can only really understand um, particular groups like African Americans as, as that the trauma of slavery is still there in some ways. You know, that one author wrote a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Right, that there are ways that the unresolved trauma, and we haven't really, obviously we haven't resolved the pain of the past in this country. Right? We've often tried to avoid it. We've resolved it. We think some things have happened, but you could argue that there's intergenerational trauma from that. There could be intergenerational trauma from the internment of the Japanese Americans or from many other social situations. Maybe. I, I think we could speak of a certain kind of trauma for women historically from 5,000 years, right? And from fears of being violated, the fear, you know, that, are, that are in way there for all women. So we really, actually, we can look at that trauma. We find it actually, it's, it's almost certainly there for everyone, you know, and some more intensely than others, right? Does that make some sense? And so how do we deal with the pain of the past? What we find where there's unresolved pain from the past, and it's something that mindfulness makes a huge difference in working with, we find that there's a kind of unresolved wound in our system. And what happens? Um, we tend to have, in certain situations, hypervigilance. And you may listen if you know the the Israeli-Palestinian territory uh, conflict. I'm going to come back to that. Listen for all this because it's all there. We have hypervigilance. We have a real situation in the past, and we continually think the real situation in the past is going to repeat. So we, in a way, are dominated by the past. We see the present through the lens of the past. And in a way, we can't really respond to the present moment in a clear way because of the wound of the past. And we may actually see dangers where they don't exist. We may think that they're dangerous. We may be on such uh, hypervigilance 
that the past is continually dominating our present moment. And again, we can probably relate to this on just in very personal ways, in ways that aren't even necessarily traumatic, that we do that, just maybe some unresolved interpersonal conflict. We see through the lens of the past, right? And maybe we're hypervigilant in that situation, right? And so I'm going to suggest that this is passed on intergenerationally and is the dominant model of the Middle East, which means that if you don't resolve trauma, you're not going to resolve the situation. If you don't in some way deal with the trauma and the reality of that, then the conflict will keep on going. You know, that's, a, that's a way of looking at things. right? And so it, again, it points towards an approach, a compassionate amount of things. So you can see that with when we're dominated by, in a particular part of our life, by pain related to the past, um, we have a certain amount of delusion. We don't see the present accurately. We project onto the present moment based on the past. We also have a tendency to recreate the traumatic situation. And again, I could see this in being in Israel. You know, I could see, for example, one of the predicaments of Jewish history for 2,000 years that actually led to the founding of Israel is feeling like I am uh, I am in a not safe situation. People around me I can't trust. You know, I am at I am beholden to the people. You know, I'm in a small ghetto. I'm beholden to the people around me to be safe. I can't really trust them. I'm vigilant. Right? Make make sense of things, and then of course. Uh, you know, and then there were, of course, in Jewish history, periodic pogroms, massacres, and so forth, persecutions culminating in the Holocaust. And so there can be this sense of, I'm not really safe. You know? And I could see that, I mean, very sadly, in the, what's happened in a lot of the Palestinian territories is that Israelis have created settlements throughout the occupied territories where they have to have massive police and military presence just to feel safe. They create these settlements. I had pictures of them last week where they're surrounded by people who they believe are hostile to them. They have fences and they almost, it's almost like they've recreated the situation of the ghetto. Right? And that's what I mean. There's a tendency with past pain, if you don't deal with it, to recreate it. Right? And, and so, and, and anyway, so I'm basically suggesting that there are, there are these, there are these inter, there's this intergenerational trauma. And we can really see how this is the case for both, uh, I think, Israelis and Palestinians. Again, very briefly, we know that uh, for close to 2,000 years, Jews had no homeland, right? They were driven out. They were persecuted and driven out by the Romans, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago, were then uh, seen very, you know, within a few hundred years, they were demonized by Christian powers and seen as the killers of Jesus and tremendous level, you know, what's ironic, of course, most of you know, is that the main problems for the Jewish people for 2,000 years were not Muslims. They had basically good relations with Muslims, you know, sometimes second class, but relatively harmonious relationships, the problems were with the Christians. <laughs> that was, that was the, the people who killed them, by and large, right? And 
it was Christian Europe that uh, led to the Holocaust, right? That's, that's ironic, right? And so there's a, sense, there's a sense of never being safe, never being at home, never having one's own home, being seen as the other. And of course, that gets, you know, that gets internalized. So if other people are not seeing you as worthwhile, we tend to internalize that, right? And think we're, we are not in some way worthwhile. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of material there over, over many centuries, um, finally leading uh, Jewish people in the end of the 19th century to develop what was called Zionism, which was a sense that we, have, we, we are not safe in Europe. We're not safe anywhere in the world. We need to have our own homeland. And you know, this was, this was an idea that came at the end of the 19th century and increasing numbers of people started settling in the area called Palestine. You know, and often not really cognizant of the people who were living there. Right? And you know, then came and the, the, the way this all accelerated with the Holocaust when there were hundreds of thousands of people without homes. And you know, at that point, the United Nations tried to work out a two-state situation or two-state resolution, but there were hundreds of thousands of people coming into the area that, that was called Palestine. Right? And um, the, many of the people there saw that they had nowhere else to go. Right? And they often did not realize that they were going into a place where there were people living. You know, I mean, it was quite, you know, the very common line that was there sometimes in that period was that there is a land, uh, let's see, there is, um, you know, that this is the homeland for a people without a land where there is a land without people. So I don't think I got that quite right, but you know that idea. So, and uh, people, in, you know, in the, um, in the 1948 war that really right after the establishment of Israel, um, most of the Palestinians left. There were massacres at times. This is called by the Palestinians the Nakba, the catastrophe. You know, and you know, a small number were left in Israel, but most fled. You know, and I, many places I went to, I got to know the exact history of what happened there. Many fled, there were massacres, and generally the uh, people who settled Israel were so traumatized that they actually didn't realize what had happened. They were so traumatized and all they could see was enemies. So you start to see how this is, I wanted to read something that was very striking, which I, which I read from someone in a kibbutz that I visited. Um, this is from 2003. And uh, this, this, uh, one of the founders of this kibbutz who arrived probably 1948 said, when we arrived in uh, Samaria, it never occurred to me that Arabs had lived here before. In the beginning, there was a rose nursery, and every morning I would gather the roses. I never gave thought as to whom the roses had belonged. Right? Or, for example, when we traveled to this uh, village Einhod to take furniture, we did not ask to whom the furniture belonged beforehand, because essentially the Arabs, uh, the Palestinians, left en masse partly because of fear of massacres, of which there were quite a number, and partly uh, basically out of unsafety, lack of safety. 
And so uh, she said, nowadays groups ask me how we could live on the ruins of an Arab village that had been expelled. My answer, at that time we were so preoccupied with ourselves. Existence was harsh, we had to overcome so many wounds. Being homeless, losing our families, we were preoccupied with no one but ourselves. That was 1948, she said 2003, today it is different. So you can see how we can understand, have some empathy and compassion through the lens of trauma and really intergenerational trauma. And there's something very similar. You can get the sense of this happening with the Palestinians, that they were living there as many as, you know, some think as close to a million in 1948. And they had seen more and more people come for the previous 50, 60 years. And they were very worried about what would happen. And they saw this through the lens of this being a European colonial enterprise. Right? And they saw people coming, more and more people coming, arriving. And um, previously, they had been in, the, in the area we call Palestine, there had been very close relationships between um, Muslims and Jews in the area we call Palestine. You know, up until the arrival of so many people, you know, very close um, connection. Like I say, historically, very good, generally good relationships. And, and so again, there were these massacres and then, you know, as many as a million refugees who were, and, and Israel made the decision to not let in any refugees, let them back to go back to their former homes. They made that decision. So again, I could go into more detail on the situation, but you get a sense of, you know, really this tragic situation, you know, of uh, people coming after the Holocaust, nowhere to go, and had been coming for some time in an ancestral homeland, and then again with people who had been living there at least for many, many hundreds of years and also had ancestry there. So, and then, that's the background, you know. Let me hold it off just for a sec. That's the background, and there is there is the, the, there is this uh, sense of ancestral, uh, or the sense of intergenerational trauma. Many generations passed on, and I just wanted to um, mention just a few ways that the trauma manifests. I know that better on the Israeli side, but um, there's, and I talked with this. I, I met with a lot of people. I met with people who had been doing Dharma practice to deal with the conflict. I met with them in Israel, and we talked about trauma and how it manifested. And they said one of the ways it manifests in, is in the continual narrative that we can't depend on others. We are good. We are the victims. They are bad. They are terrorists. They will kill us. And that narrative gets very, very fixated. Can you see how that's a, a narrative based on trauma, right? based on fear, continual, and it's based also on the, you know, there are the you know, continual reality of attacks by some Palestinians, right? You know, um, the, you know, the day after I left Israel, there was an attack in Jerusalem, right? And so, and so these things happen, it's, it's complex, but there's a sense we cannot trust the other side, they are terrorists, uh, and so there's a basis of fear, anxiety, being hypervigilant, uh, and there's a sense that you know, uh, never again will we be will we let this happen. Right? 
And so you can, can you see how that comes out of trauma? And again, what I've heard and seen from reading is that a lot of that pain of 2,000 years has never been adequately grieved. Right? And so again, when you look at the dynamics of grief, it, may, it needs time and space. When, you're, when you have to continually think about survival, you can't grieve. You know, and if you look at the dynamics of grieving. So, and again, I think there's something very much parallel with the Palestinians where they think, oh, these Jews, they're the colonizers. They're just like all the people that came before. They want to get rid of us. You know, there's no place for us. You know, they are bad. We are good. We are the victims. So both sides see themselves as victims. So, okay, get the picture? Not an easy picture. So what to do? I, want, I didn't want to end you end with that situation. I wanted to point to some positive things. But I think, again, I think these dynamics, even though that's an extreme situation, I think there are ways that those dynamics can be, we can see that that's there for some aspects of our own lives, personal, interpersonal, and even collective. You know, maybe we are, you know, in shock about climate issues. I don't know. How do you deal with this stuff? How do you deal with that? We're in, maybe we are paralyzed about other social things that we don't know how to deal with, right? That we want to. You know, some people, you know, want to work with, you know, issue of racism or issue of social justice, and we, we don't, hard to, for some people, hard to know how to do that. So I'll just close with saying, here are some things which people actually were doing. Here's what, and I think it's helpful to think of what can I do individually, what can I do relationally, and what can I do collectively? Three aspects of practice. So individually, uh, cultivating mindfulness is going to be very helpful for this, to see how is my mind in a reactive uh, space. If I am involved with a conflict, how am I reacting? And so one of the projects which uh, people developed, some of the people I met with, and one particular woman named Shiri Barr, she developed a project called Understanding the Mind of Conflict. What does the mind look like? And you know, mindfulness is incredibly helpful for this. And she said that she found seven different uh, uh, ways that the mind works when you're in conflict. And it's going to be less when you're maybe in an interpersonal conflict. She identified these, these ways that the mind went. She's, she found uh, ways of thinking such as, they have killed us. We will fight. They are evil and cannot change. They hurt me because they are evil. So you see extreme polarization of right and wrong, good and, good and evil. I'm good, they're bad. We want peace. We want to unite. All that are not with us are traitors. Okay? So some of that logic has been heard in the US recently. This is not, not foreign. And so with mindfulness, you can start to understand you can start to see how the mind's working. So one of the great applications is to be able to notice when, my, when is my mind reactive. Training in mindfulness, huge, a huge resource, right, for anyone who's interested in working with your own conflict or that of others. Can you watch your own mind and know that we have tendencies to react? Can you develop empathy and compassion? There's a tremendous amount that can be done individually. Um, can you... Um, um, can you uh, have a perspective that the, our deepest nature is love and wisdom? 
A lot of times when you're in conflict, we can get despairing about the, ult- the deeper perspective, as I mentioned earlier, right? Can you keep on reminding yourself that there is a framework, even for the hardest things, that can be guided by wisdom and love, and that wisdom and love are the deepest parts of our being. This is what we find in spiritual practice, and when you go deep enough, you know that in a way which cannot be reversed, really. That's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow in Berkeley, equanimity. Right? But when you go deep enough, there's something in you that's unshakable. And it's not unshakable all the time. It's unshakable a lot of the time. <laughs> so that's, what, that's why we practice. That's why retreats are incredibly important, because you can go into the depths. And you know, even if you feel, oh, I'm under the, you know, I'm under the reactive impulse right now. But you, some part of you knows better. Some part of you knows. So that's something you can do with individual practice. You can have that perspective. And you can watch for the tendencies to be reactive or tendencies to go numb, to normalize an abnormal situation. A lot of Israelis do that, I found. They, norm, they know it's not normal, but you know, everyone wants to lead a normal life. Right? And so they would normalize abnormal, everyone, everyone does that, Palestinians, Israelis, and so forth. And then, uh, then uh, relationally, a lot of very valuable projects, a lot of collaborative projects between, between Israeli uh, Jews and Palestinians. Right? Uh, I heard of a lot of them, I noticed some of them, I talked to people about them, where they were uh, sometimes people coming together to talk about these tendencies together. You know, some of those projects have gone on for years. Developing relationships with people that formerly were the other really, really crucial. Developing close relationships across the boundaries. Really a crucial part of all this. You know, and clearly a part of the whole basis for any peacemaking. You know, whether in the US, whether you know, people from red states and blue states, or people on different sides of the political divide, how can you listen with empathy and compassion? Again, this can be done. You know, can be done. And, um, uh, when I, I, I taught, I mentioned I taught for four years in Kentucky. I, I uh, taught at the uh, University of Kentucky, and I would often I would teach ethics classes where I had people on both sides of really hot issues, just listen to each other, and we focused on the process of empathic listening, and it changed people's lives. Right? And it changed so you don't get so much into the issue, but you can value empathy and compassion. To learn to, talk, to learn to be with people with opposite views. Really crucial. Each of us can do that, right? Each of us can do that. You have to, you have, to have the clear intention. So David, they did that there. Um, they formed connection even in times of violence. They would stay with the connections. Um, a number of the people I met and worked with had regular relationships with Palestinian villages in the occupied territories. They would go there and they would um, help harvest the olive crop. Sometimes there were activists. Sometimes, for example, the Israeli army might be threatening to uh, cut down the olive crop. Sometimes they intervened. And they found that that had power. Israeli citizens intervening had power. They intervened when there was a diversion of water, which is a scarce resource there, away from a village. And they, they brought the situation to the public. This is the group of people, all practitioners, 
engaging in this way. They did, did that kind of work. They, they took people on tours to know the reality of the situation. I was told that I, being there five weeks, probably knew more about the occupied territories than most Israelis. Most people had never even experienced what I experienced on these visits, right? And so that, that kind of, you know, those kind of tours are very, very crucial. And, and then there are a lot of other projects, very hopeful. Some of you may know there are very beautiful projects which bring the families of people who have lost children to the violence together. There's a beautiful movie called Encounter Point, which you, you know, it's uh, probably in your local library. Very beautiful to see, or Netflix, right? Right. And there are people, none of this makes the news in the US. A lot of it doesn't make the news in Israel. There's a lot of very positive action going on. Bereaved families getting together in large numbers across the boundaries. Yeah. And um, so forming connections, action, um, you know, acting in these different ways. So maybe I'll just finish. And I realize I've taken a little more time than I wanted to. Um, I'll just finish with two readings. One of this is one of them is from some of the people I met with who were doing these actions. They said, "From this readiness for human encounter, we forge a different reality: closeness between Israelis and Palestinians, falling away of the shackles of fear and hostility, a more complex understanding of the situation, a reality of inspiration and hope." In the year ahead, we will continue our work as we have now. Our basis is, on the one hand, the personal relations that are being created between us and our partners in Wallage and Deretz Svia, and on the other, the fact that we are part of a marvelous uh, community of Dharma practitioners. It's upon that foundation that we are continuing to take action. To engender a better reality and also to awaken our practitioner friends to the responsibility that devolves on us all to do good in the world. It is not always easy to summon the energy for this. The primary source of our motivation and inspiration is the very basis on which we act, the people we are in contact with in the meditation hall and villages who touch our hearts. This is the circle that moves us, and perhaps we are able to move it. And then I'll finish with a passage from Joanna Macy. She says, the gate of the Dharma does not close behind us to secure us in a cloistered existence aloof from the turbulence and suffering of the world, so much as it uh, leads us out into a life for the sake of all beings. As many Dharma brothers and sisters discover today, the world is our monastery. Thank you. So we're actually at time now, so I think I'm going to honor that and say that uh, let me, uh, I wanted to have time for discussion, but it didn't work. <laughs> and so what I want to do is end and say, may, we, may, may our practice be a benefit for all beings, remembering that all beings includes us. And then invite anyone who wants to stay for another 10 minutes. You can stay and we'll, we'll talk just for 10 minutes together. So if you want to go, it's fine right now. What?
Yeah, sure. You can. It's two pages. You can take it out. Just put it. You want to put it down? Has. Yeah. I think I'll just do this. The cigars. Okay. okay. Well, let's let's ask the. I'm going to have a, a group discussion for those. How many would like to stay for ten minutes? Okay. Others can go, but we'll. Um, um, any any comments or questions, please. I think you had a. Did you have a more personal question? Yeah, let's let's use the microphone. Bring the microphone over. Anyway, th thank you, those who are leaving, so much for your attention and, and kindness. Um, where's the microphone? Okay. Over here. Yeah, um, so let me distinguish a little some of the details of the history. When I, was, when I was talking about the people who may not have known that there was an Arab village there, I think I'm talking about the people who may have come in 1947, 48, 49, after the Holocaust, after the Arabs had already more or less been expelled or left. Um, so that, that's the historical time. The other people who came earlier certainly knew. Um, that there were villages, and like I said, there was often uh, quite a bit of harmony, um, probably up until 1920, widespread uh, harmony and friendships, and even, I've heard, some intermarriage across the communities. Um, if you want to look for more detail on that, there's a book by a man named uh, Menachem, Menachem Klein, who's a scholar at, uh, I think, Bar-Ilan University in Tel Aviv. And he wrote a book documenting this. And if you look at his name, you can find summaries of it on the internet, summaries of his thesis. He, he studied communities in Hebron, Jaffa, and Jerusalem, and found quite close connections. He was studying the situation maybe 1880, 1900, around there. As there came to be more Zionists coming to the country, there was, a, and as it was also supported to a large extent by the uh, colonizers such as the British, that's when there started to be a lot of anxiety among the Palestinians. And there's, there were, there started to be violence in the 1920s. The early Zionists No, it was the, the, some of the, I think there was violence back and forth, but some, a lot of the, in the, the early violence, there, were, there was violence um, in the 1920s, also in the 1930s, uh, perpetrated by Palestinians. There were, there were massacres of, of Jews in Hebron and other places. Yeah, yeah, so, and then ultimately there was violence back and forth, right? But there, were, there, was, there was a lot of hostility 
to the large number of Jews coming. They were also starting to buy up the land. And if you want a, a history, a book that gives, I think, a fairly, from what I know, a fairly fair history is uh, by a local uh, teacher, Rabbi Michael Lerner, a book called Embracing Israel-Palestine, which, which I find gives, a, most of the book is the history. It's quite, it's quite, if you're interested. Yeah, thank you. Other comments, questions? Please. Close to your mouth. You're doing fine. <laughs> Yes, a lot, lot of, lot of um, points and, and questions. Um, yeah, for, first of all, in terms of what you're pointing to, it's, it's actually it's the, the laws being suggested are, are very sp specific. They're not generally about uh, anyone who's pro-Palestinian. They're, they're specific towards the uh, movement called uh, BDS, which is the uh, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement. And they're trying to, and they're, they're, they're complex. The, the laws, as I understand, are complex. So they're, they're more directed towards uh, 
but, but they, are, they are draconian and anti-democratic, I would agree there, but they're basically directed towards, uh, you know, like organizations like, uh, you know, universities, which go along with uh, some boycott, as, as universities did in the case of South Africa, for example. Uh, they'd be directed in that way, not, not so much towards individuals, but towards, towards uh, organizations. And it parallels an Israeli law, which was just implemented a few days, was implemented in, I think, in March, which actually prohibits uh, leaders of the, or public advocates of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions from entering Israel. And that's quite draconian as well. Um, so what can people do? I think Michael Lerner has a nice collection of suggestions. Uh, yeah, the, the news is very limited. Even, you know, I, I've been, you know, like I say, there was violence occurred the day after I left in Jerusalem. And I, you know, I've been following the Israeli press. There's a very good English language uh, newspaper, kind of the equivalent of the New York Times in Israel called Haaretz, which you can subscribe to. And um, it's in English. There's an English language edition. And I've been following that. And even, you know, even the New York Times extremely limited about what it would uh, publish and uh, almost nothing on any of these positive developments that uh, that I've talked about, and I, I've you know I, so the average American citizen, or if you just look at the San Francisco Chronicle, which I get, and the the uh, you know I've been also seeing what they report. It's extremely limited, and people don't have any good sense of what's going on there, and so I think there people are at the mercy of manipulation. Uh, that's very, very, very clear and not well informed. So being, you know, you know, I think each of us has to choose the, you know, the issues that we're involved in. You can't, can't do everything. So some may feel called to this, this particular area. You know, others may feel called to other issues. And I think, but to be well informed is very important. I think to develop uh, all of these uh, areas that I've identified as training, mindfulness, empathy, and compassion, skill in being with difficult situations, difficult emotions, conflicts. This is the curriculum. That's the individual curriculum. And then, you know, there are, there, there, there are uh, active groups in the U.S. that you could be involved with. There's quite a bit of, quite a, a number of, uh, I think, uh, collaborative groups between Muslims and Jews or between people who want to have collaborative groups in the U.S. that can influence things. Um, that, that can be very helpful. Uh, but, but I think you're pointing to the U.S. plays a very, very large role in the situation. So affecting U.S. policy is significant. You know, because, uh, and in fact, one of the fears in Israel is that, you know, with an erratic president, it's harder to know what's happening. You know, and the U.S. has been uh, uh, providing large amounts of the... Uh, uh, military aid for a number of years, and so some people are concerned about, you know, having an erratic president in power. I mean, what, you know, what what can we think is going to happen? So, but you know, beyond that, there you know there are these um, ways that uh, the U.S. could really affect things quite positively, and in many ways. Again, this is, you'd have to read the history in many ways, arguably, it sometimes has and sometimes hasn't. So 
but I think yeah just see where you're drawn and there there are things local as well as national I think maybe last one and then we'll then we'll finish up uh, Benjamin please Let's 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.